Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. This morning we uh, are continuing in our series, Life in the Kingdom. And if you've been with us for a few months, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that we've been learning over the past probably six or seven weeks now is that Jesus was not getting rid of the moral law. He wasn't getting rid of God's law. He was unpacking it at a much deeper level, which is a really important thing to understand when you see God's law. Jesus wasn't abolishing the law, this is what he said, but he came to fulfill the law. And I said this last time when I taught on anger, Jesus wasn't correcting the moral law of God. What he was doing was correcting the legalistic, behavior-driven interpretation of the law. That's really important, that Jesus wasn't correcting God's law, he was correcting a legalistic, behavior-driven interpretation of the law. Which is a very prevalent interpretation of the law even today. That we interpret the law out of a legalistic, behavior-driven mentality. And when you do that, you begin to do things that God never asked you to do. And so Jesus set out to correct that interpretation. The incorrect view of the law is to build out a list of things to do. I mean, that's the easy way to fulfill the law in your, in your own power, okay? Okay? Don't be angry. All right. Anytime I'm about to get angry, I'm going to remember that I'm not allowed to eat uh, Moose Tracks ice cream ever again. Every, every time I'm angry, I have to change my ice cream flavor, which is tough for me because I can't eat any chocolate anymore. Like, we could create any, any sort of rules for ourselves that would help us to fulfill the law, and God um, doesn't want it to be that way. What we have been learning is that God's law is not so much about what you can do, but about who you are becoming. God's law is not about what you can do, but about who you are becoming. Two sides to this thinking is this. One is that the law is only about doing things. And if you have enough discipline to do things, you can fulfill God's law and you can be in right standing. The opposite side of this view is that I don't have to become a new creation. God has saved me, and I'm good. But God's law is not about doing things, and it's not about standing still. God's law is about becoming a new person in Christ. So, you can't stand on this side of the spectrum and just do a bunch of things and behave well enough, and you can't be over here and say, well, nothing ever has to change. It's a tension that we live in. That's what God's law is all about. The law is the prescribed way that Christians are meant to live differently than the world around them. We've said this so many times, but the Sermon on the Mount is the ethics of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is the ethics of the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is a countercultural kingdom. It's different than the rest of the world. Disciples of Jesus are meant to act, think, and respond differently than the world. Your actions, your thoughts, and your decisions should be different from the world. You should be able to differentiate yourself from the world. And the world should be able to realize that you're different from them. Jesus doesn't ask us to have 
simply external conformity, but the heart of the law is a, a heart that is internally alive to God. And when your heart is internally alive to God, you can truly live countercultural. You can pretend to live countercultural with a heart that's not alive to God. And I've done it, and I know people in here have done it, and it burns you out so fast. But when your heart is truly alive to Christ, and that's your motivation, a countercultural life isn't that difficult. It's actually a joy. And that's what Jesus wants for us as a church. The best type of life that you can have, the very best type of life that you can have, is a life that is internally alive to Jesus. That your rest and your satisfaction comes completely in Him. That's the main point of the Sermon on the Mount. Is that you can't have rest, you can't have satisfaction, unless your heart is alive to God. That's the law of God. That we're not meant to follow it externally only, but you are. But that happens after your heart is truly alive to Christ. And so Jesus finishes his discourse on the law, and I have the privilege on talking about the haymaker of all laws, which is love. Now love is a really interesting word because, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but love is such a versatile word. Um, that's why I call it the haymaker, because when I read this, my mind goes like a million different ways. What, is, what does that really mean to love? So we're going to go ahead and we're going to get into the passage. Matthew 5, 43-48. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a pretty terrifying finish to that passage, right? So this morning, I just want to break down the passage in three different questions. Um, I want us to look at who we're supposed to love according to the law, how we're supposed to love according to the law, and why we're supposed to love according to the law. Remembering that God's law is not about actually just... So I don't want you to leave and say, all right, I can answer these three questions, and now I'm going to make a list of how I'm going to actually solve the equation to love. These come out of a rest in Christ. So according to God's law, who do we love? Verses 43 through 45. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is in your notes. According to God's law, who do you have to love if you're a disciple of Jesus? The answer is everyone. According to God's law, who do you have to love if you're a disciple of Jesus? Everyone. Every single person that you ever interact with, or come into contact with, or have an encounter with, or meet at the grocery store, every single person deserves your love. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. 
But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus, once again, is not correcting just the law. He's not saying, don't love your neighbors. He's correcting a misinterpretation of the law. And he does that here. It is very true all throughout the law that it says that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. That law doesn't change. But you can search the Scriptures over and over and over, and you're not going to find anywhere, anywhere, the command to hate the enemy. You can't find it anywhere that you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In fact, God's hatred of evil, no matter the recipient of the evil, was a central theme in the Old Testament. So all throughout the Old Testament, God hated it when anyone was oppressed. He didn't, even if it was his, you know, his enemies that were oppressed, God didn't like oppression. But he still never said to hate your enemy. So how did it get to this point that Jesus had to address? I mean, you guys realize that Jesus is saying a really common thing. It wasn't a surprise to them that they were supposed to hate their enemies. That's why this is so shocking that Jesus says to love their enemies. Because it, it had been maintained in their teaching for hundreds of years that if you were to love your neighbor, it meant to hate your enemy. And the Pharisees had maintained this false teaching for a while. That if you were a child of God, you should hate anyone that was not your neighbor. It had been embedded into their very being that to love your neighbor meant to hate your enemy. But Jesus sets out to correct this bad interpretation. What he would do all throughout the New Testament, we talk about it a lot here at Southside, Jesus uses extreme examples to prove his point. He did this a lot. So to show how deep the law of love goes for Christians, Jesus goes to the extreme edge of the command. Who does the law require that we love? Our enemies. And since we are required to love our enemies, it's a requirement to love your enemies, we are equally required to love every single person in between. Jesus goes as far as He can to show you that no one is outside your spectrum of love. You can't look and think of anyone that doesn't deserve your love. Because even your enemies, your most hated foe, deserves your love. So your sister that annoys you deserves your love. And your friend that you might just not be on the same wavelength with anymore deserves your love. And so does your, uh, your workplace uh, collaborator that decides to do the project completely differently than you, that just gets on your every last nerve, you're not supposed to go home and talk about how annoying they are to your spouse. You're supposed to love them. It's an amazing, amazing command. One that seems to be impossible for me because when someone gets on my nerves, I talk Melissa's ear off. She doesn't do the same, I'm sure. The leap that the Pharisees were making was that if you're going to love your neighbor, you've got to hate your enemy. Jesus clears this up later when he talks 
about the Good Samaritan, which is a parable which I preached on in January. I just want to give you the highlights really quickly because the same question is asked to Jesus. Jesus tells a lawyer to fulfill the law of God, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, the lawyer wanted to see, okay, how can I make sure that I've got this right? Asks, who is my neighbor? And what he's really asking is, who don't I have to love? And the conclusion at the end of the story is that every single person is your neighbor. Even those who you are most at odds with. And on the flip side of that, even those who are most at odds with you, they deserve your love too. That's your neighbor. So when Jesus says to love your enemies, the point that we must get this morning is that in God's kingdom, your enemies are your neighbors too. So the law of God to love your neighbors doesn't change. It just, the interpretation of the law is deeper. And it makes more sense that, yeah, you still have to love your neighbors, but your enemies are your neighbors. Command to love your neighbor, to love your enemies is unfounded in the rest of the world. To love your enemies is uniquely Christian. It's completely countercultural. Jesus expands it in the passage here. He says, don't the tax collectors love those who love them? Tax, I mean, tax collectors were the worst of the worst. Don't they love the people who love them back? Doesn't the world greet their brothers with love? Don't the Gentiles do that really simple loving act? How are you any different? Jesus is showing us that it's easy to love those who love you back. And I can say for sure that's true. And I'm sure if I would ask you, you would say that too. It's true. If someone is reciprocating your love, you're almost always going to give more love. I mean, that's natural. But the whole world does that. And the Sermon on the Mount is about Christians who are countercultural. It takes something outside of yourself to love someone who not only doesn't love you in return, but at their core might even hate you. You have this quote in your notes, but St. Augustine, I think that Sam cleared it up for us last time. Is it, it's Augustine, right, Sam? Okay, Sam cleared it up for us last time we talked about it. St. Augustine says, good for good is natural. Everyone can do that. Evil for good is devilish. It's not a very good response. But good for evil is divine. It's how Jesus loved people. How did he treat his enemies? When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Truly a divine response to love your enemies. How could you ever love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Because Jesus has already loved his enemies and prayed for his persecutors. One of the most amazing things about the commands of God is that if it's commanded, Jesus empowers it. If it's commanded, Jesus empowers it. And he doesn't just empower it, he goes ahead and does it first. So how could you ever pray for your enemies and love your enemies and pray for your persecutors? 
Because Jesus has already shown us the example. You can be hanging on a cross and still say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'd love to see them love you, God. So who should we love according to the law? The answer is everyone. Second question is this. How do we love? Now it's, the heat's going to turn up a little bit here. Who do you love? Everyone. How do you love? Like God loves. Like God loves. That's overwhelming to me. I'm supposed to love like God loves. In college, um, Sean was a part of these, I think. I'm not sure who else. Titch, I don't know if you were ever there, but we played these massive games of Mafia. Did anyone ever play Mafia? I don't know if it's like a card game where you have to like figure out who the Mafia members are. You have, I think you have to figure out who the Godfather is. I don't know. Essentially, you get assigned a card, and then that's who you are. And we would play like 20, 25-person games of Mafia till like 4 in the morning, which we went to Liberty, and it was illegal to do that. So you had to sign out. This is crazy. You had to sign out to stay at your friend's house to play these mafia games. And I had this buddy named Mark, and I'm telling you every single time we played these games, in the middle, it would, he would ask a question, what's love? Does anyone like Forky? Anyone watch Forky ask a question? Forky ask a question. One of his questions is, what is love? And we would talk about this for hours. What really is love? How do you really love someone? Is love a feeling? Does it fade after a while? Am I supposed to feel really, really, really good about someone forever? Is that love? And of course, we would sit around as 19 to 22-year-olds and we would have all the answers because we were really, really smart college students. But it's, it's one of my most vivid memories of Mark is that every time we were together, he would be talking about love. What really is love? And like I said in the beginning, love is one of the most versatile words in the world. Love is a noun. God is love. Love is a verb. You can love someone. Love is an adjective. I have a loving wife, which I truly do. Love is an adverb. You lovingly made dinner tonight. Love is a name. Once again, my love. You're my example today, babe. <laughs> love is so versatile. And it's kind of a confusing word when you read love your enemies because in English, we like to use one word and it means a hundred different things. Like if you learned English in Northeast Ohio and you were here for 10 years and then you went to Alabama and tried to speak the same English, it would almost not compute. English is kind of weird that way. And love in the English Translation is most often used with a feeling, a gushy emotion towards someone. It was probably this way for me because I watched every Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie ever, which Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, I don't know if they have any more than that. But you, you just had this feeling. You had to go across the United States to meet this guy who you heard on the radio, and then in the other movie, you emailed him a bunch. You got to meet him in the park. Like, you feel a certain way about someone. That's love. I don't think that's the type of love that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. The love that Jesus is talking about is this word, it's called agape. And some of you may have heard it before. I, going to Bible college, I heard this word a lot. I don't, 
I think I got burned out on the word, but in my study, it kind of came alive to me again how amazing this word truly is, agape. God's nature is love. And love is the expression of his being. When we see the love that God possesses and expresses, it's always agape love. Agape is shown by what it does. It's a love expressed in action and in choice. It's sacrificial. Agape is a love characterized by sacrifice and choice. Almost every commentator I read on what agape was all agreed that agape is a determined act of the will. A joyful resolve to put the welfare of others above our own. That's how God loves. A choosing sacrificial love. Let's see how God loves according to the passage. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is truly an amazing description of God's love. It's like Jesus uses some of the coolest analogies ever. He's using weather to talk about God's love. He's using weather to talk about God's love. That God's natural and supernatural grace is freely offered to everyone. He doesn't only send the rain and He doesn't only let the sun rise on people who like Him. He doesn't just give good gifts to the people who are sowing and reaping and praising Him. Tim Mackey talks about it this way, the farmer that is upstanding and pays his workers fairly gets the same weather as the farmer who is a cheat and pays his workers poorly. They both give, get the same life-giving sun and rain. It's one of the most amazing passages that would obliterate this theology that if you, know, you do all the right things, then God is definitely going to make your crops grow. I mean, sometimes that doesn't happen. There's a whole book called Job that talks about that. God freely gives His love to those who don't like Him that much. And that's how we're meant to love. How could you love this way? Well, somehow Jesus empowers Christians to give the same sacrificial love to your best friend that you would give to your enemy. I mean, I'm not going to do that if Jesus isn't empowering me to do that. My track record is really bad. I mean, some of you guys have known me long enough. If someone gets on my nerves, I'm not naturally going to love them. I'm not. Let alone my enemy that's talking behind my back. I'm not going to do it unless Jesus empowers it. But that's the thing. In the kingdom, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you actually don't have the right to deny anyone kindness and generosity. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And the sun rises on the good and the evil. So agape love. That's, what, that's how we're supposed to love. It's not the warm fuzzies. Jesus isn't asking you to get that feeling that you get on your first date, like holding hands, well, thinking you want to hold hands on your first date at putt-putt. Like, it's not that. It's also not brotherly affection. 
When you see your best friend and you're just like, man, I just love that guy. Everything about this person. It's not that either. Those are different types of love. The world does both of those really, really well. God isn't asking you to stay up at night and like think about your enemies and go, all right, I'm going to really, really like them now. Like, God, you're gonna, I got to like them. You're going to have to make me want to be their best friend. That's, sometimes that happens, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the extreme edges of the command is that Jesus asks you to love even when it goes against your affections. That is a countercultural love. Love that goes against your affections. Agape is a choice to do good when you're not reciprocated. And this is the type of love that Christians are supposed to have for their enemies. A choosing love when you're not loved in return. There are some, some actions that we take because we feel like it. Babe, I'm going to use you one more time. You've been a trooper. I didn't ask you to stand up or anything. Like That's the youth pastor thing. Stand up. No, they didn't do any of that. But taking my wife out on a date is never a burden for me. I love it. I feel like doing it. I enjoy it. It is always amazing. I like don't have to think about it. It's not a choice. Yes, we have to go on a date. That's incredible. And then there are loving actions that are clearly made out of a choice. You have to consciously decide, I'm going to view this person in light of how God views them. And that's really, really hard. And that's uniquely Christian. How could you do that? It's the type of love that the Good Samaritan showed to the Jew. And if you've been reading Gentle and Lowly with us, this is the love that surges towards you in your sin. How does the law require you to love your enemies like God loves you? And we're going to zoom through this. Last question, why do, why do we love according to the law? Because Christ, because in Christ, this is in your notes, why? Because in Christ you are a child of God. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father. The Gospel in all of this is that agape love, a choosing, sacrificial love, is the type of love that God had for you when you were His enemy. Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why do you love your enemies? Because God infinitely loved you when you were His enemy. That's so important to realize. You weren't not His enemy. You were His enemy. And God sacrificially loved you. A love of your enemies is a surefire sign that you are a child of God. And since you are a son or a daughter of the Father, you're meant to emulate Him. Our motivation for loving our enemies the reason why we love our enemies is a realization that even our enemies, even our enemies are created in the image of God. They may sin differently than you. They probably do. They may seem more evil than you. They're probably not. 
But the fact remains that while your enemies are yet sinners, Christ died for them and freely offers the gift of becoming a child of God. That's why we love, so that others might see that there is a God that truly loves and cares for them even when they are His enemy, even when they don't like Him. That is a countercultural love, a radical type of love, a love that can only happen when you recognize that you were too an enemy and God loved you in your sin. Jesus finishes this passage with something that is kind of intimidating to me. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to talk for just a second on what this means. Same with the word love. Perfect here, kind of the translation doesn't really work. I wish there was a different um, translation here. But it seems to me, and I had to study people that are way smarter than me because this was really terrifying, this, this passage. It seems like the people who are way smarter than me would say that the word perfect here actually means maturity. It actually means maturation. It's the sense of being complete being made whole in Christ. It goes even a layer than that. Mature Christians love their enemies with the love that they have received from God. But what is maturity? Where is this phrase, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Where does that come from? Here comes the pressure release valve. If you read this and you're like, I need some, like, I'm, this is hard. Paul explains maturity in a really amazing way in Philippians 3. This passage freed me in several different ways. He says this later, that if, you, if you're mature, you would think this way. That's how Paul writes. He writes this big, massive thing and then says, you know, he puts it back to that. But he's saying, if you're mature, you would think this way. And here it is in Philippians 3. should be in your notes. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me His own. Paul is saying that maturity is realizing that Jesus has adopted you as a son and a daughter and that you are in process. I'm not there yet. That's the mature response. The immature response is to say, I've got it. The mature response is to say, I'm not there yet. The immature response is to say, I don't need any more growth. The mature response is to say, I'm in process. I don't love my enemies very well, and I need Jesus to help me. Maturity is to say, I'm pressing forth towards this because Christ has made me His own. And what's amazing is that what the law requires, Jesus empowers. And so Jesus comes alongside you in maturity as well. I think the best definition of maturity is a heart that is fully dependent on Jesus. A heart that is fully dependent on Jesus. Of course, you're not going to actively choose to love someone 
who hates you without Jesus. That's unnatural. It's unnatural to say, this person hates me, I love you. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't give a natural response. Don't give a natural response to your enemies. Give a godly response. One that Jesus empowers through you. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.